Hello, and welcome to the Woodard Report podcast, where we empower business advisors to transform businesses. This podcast is your source for information and news you need for your accounting, bookkeeping, or tax practice. And it is proudly sponsored by Expensify, the expense management app that does it all for every business. For more information about Expensify, please visit woodard.com slash podcast. And now your hosts, Joe Woodard and Heather Satterley. Well, Heather, we are back again for another one of our Heather Joe episodes. Uh, I'm excited. Absolutely. I look forward to these. So, and we're talking about something super important and something that I think everybody crosses this threshold, right? Of, um, you know, when they're in their practice, they start their practice and actually at any stage where you have to come down to, is the price still the right price? Right. Hmm. And, and what are the hidden, what are the hidden costs? that are diminishing my price. Yes. Exactly. Both. Absolutely. Yes. And so, um, so it's, a, it's such an important topic. The, the, the market is grossly underpricing their services. And we have, as you know, an entire strategic pricing workshop, six weeks virtually. It takes three days to get through it on premises. Um, we will be offering that later in the year. So just stay tuned at water.com. Make sure you subscribe so you can get, so you can know when that's going to be offered again. Um, but we've seen people go through that, go through our corrective pricing worksheet and find 50,000, 75,000, what some, one, one firm, and it's not a terribly large firm found $300,000 in underpricing. They were just leaving the money on the table. And, and what's really cool, Heather, is that we go back since we coach a lot of these people and we, and we see them actually implement the change, not just look at it academically. And they find that about you know eighty percent of their clients on the average stay when they make significant increases in price corrections in price. So we've been able to generate you know a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars or more in annualized wealth from just this one workshop, which doesn't isn't tooting our horn. It's speaking to the larger problem that you mentioned. We're addressing a problem. It just happens to be an addressable problem. The people that are coming to this workshop have no idea how grossly underpriced they are. They really don't. They really don't. And you know, having sat in that chair and not realizing how un- <laughs> how grossly underpriced I was at one point in my my life, um, a couple times actually, it, it is that kind of aha moment. And it's always amazing to have those conversations after they've they've taken that step of raising their prices and then having the conversation about not one of my clients even said anything and, or a client said, it's about time. It's about time. I hear that all the time. time. Yes. Right. Right. And, uh, and, you know, we experienced that on our side as well, because there's so much competition in the event space that we, we were scared. We, 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 we were practicing what we were teaching in every other area with our consulting and with our coaching programs, but with our conference, we were grossly under market and there was a fear factor, same fear factor everyone is dealing with this listening to this podcast. And we didn't know what would happen either. And we, I mean, it was not a small jump. We jumped from the high hundreds to the low thousands. It was a big jump. And when I said from the main stage of Scaling New Heights, I said, you know, this is a big jump, but look, Scaling New Heights has been grossly underpriced for the last, you know, five years. Everybody in that audience gave me a round of applause they, they agreed with me with applause that they should be investing more money in this thing they're enjoying. 
And now our registrations for Scale New Heights are 20% over this point last year. So all of this just to encourage you that an increase in price doesn't is not usually proportional to a decrease in number of clients. And if there is a decrease in number of clients, there's usually a net increase in profitability. So now, but I want to address a very specific piece because we could do 10 episodes just on pricing and scratch the surface. That's why we have this intensive workshop. But you and I talked about this, Heather, and you were you were like, I think this this sneaky leak in the boat thing is what our listeners really need to hear about. Because let's say you've corrected your price, or let's say that you know you need to, and um, and you feel like maybe even, hey, I'm I'm at top of market here. I feel really good about where my pricing is. There's a a sneaky diminishment of revenue. I call it the leak in the boat factor. We're calling it the hidden cost factor, right? But it's chipping away. Call it like net revenue reduction. That's not accurate financially. That's not accurate in terms of gap, but it's a great metaphor. There's a, it's, it's like creating a net revenue that's lower than your actual price. And, and it's, it's a revenue attrition, right? And so um, I'm going to address that today. And we're going to try to, plug up some of those leaks, get some of those hidden costs mitigated. Now, even if you feel like you're underpriced, this is relevant to you because it's going to still help you with your bottom line. And if you're priced right, this is going to help you because it's going to help you with your bottom line. All right. So the first, the first hidden cost is the client missing the deadline. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now we know we speak to this all the time as a practice frustration but we don't think about it in its proper context. It's actually the client reducing our profit, which of course reduces our net income. They are costing us money. They're not just frustrating our process. And I know that should seem obvious, but when I talk to a lot of practitioners, they can't get past the emotional frustration, the procedural frustration to to recognize it's an actual financial transaction that's taking place. And it's a negative financial transaction to my revenue. So in order to, if, if you will manage the deadlines in a way that's connected to price, you will neutralize the price, the net price impact or the pricing attribution impact of the deadline issue. So for example, if somebody says, hey, I want to get my corporate return out by March the 15th. Now, that's very relevant to the time we're recording this on January the 30th, right? Because, you know, we're 45 days out. So if somebody wants to get this tax return filed on time by March the 15th, they should already have given you financials. If they haven't given you a clean set of books as of the time we're recording this, January the 30th, they're done. I mean, we're in extension territory. And I know a lot of tax preparers, what I just said is almost blasphemous. You, are you kidding? If I if I were to get clean financials on February 15th, that would be a godsend. And you're telling me I need to force them to extend on January 30th? I am telling them. Because if you've, you've got a client that isn't maintaining their financials real time, refusing to pay you to do it, and not closing out their year by January the 15th with good, accurate, clean financials because 
January 15th, outside of a few year-end entries, which you're probably going to help them with, is just another month in close. And they've already closed, you know, um, they already closed November, December the 15th. So all they have to do is close December, January the 15th. This isn't rocket science. Every business that's organized closes within 15 days of the last day of the previous month. If that's not the kind of business they are, or they're not paying you to make them that kind of business, they don't deserve to file on time. Heather, I know that's radical, but. I I agree. I, I agree. And, you know, for those that are thinking, well, what about my competition? Because the guy down the street, they're not going to hold them to that standard and, you know, they're going to do it. I'm going to lose the business. Um, but the reality is, is that we have to change that whole narrative and it becomes this bigger, you know, this bigger um, issue that we have with our industry that we've let our clients define our work, which customers absolutely and, have a say, but we're the experts. And the unrealistic demands of our work. So, okay. so, and let me tell you, you're right that we have to change our thinking, but there are two things about them going to my competitors. First, right now there's a, ta- a shortage of qualified tax preparers, especially ones that people trust. Um, and you're not going to surprise the client. You're already too late to put this into effect this year, tax preparers. This mm-hmm. is something you would put into effect. You would have put into effect and communicated to them in October, right? So we're not talking about, sh- you know, surprising people. Um, and so you're going to get to commit to this way out ahead and, and, and then they're going to own the outcome, good or bad, because they will have pre-decided with you months ahead. So there's some context there. Number two, if they don't have clean books, they refuse to pay you for books and they have unrealistic demands and they go to your competitors, that just gives you more competitive advantage because now they become the leak in your competitor's boat, right? And you can take on, you've freed up capacity in your firm to take on a client that respects your deadlines, has realistic understanding of what you need to get your job done. And if they don't get it done in-house, they're willing to invest in you to get it done for them. They respect their financials. Then that's a candidate for upsell. So that's the other thing to look at too. When you're looking at revenue attribution, there's the cost of them presenting to you an unrealistic deadline. And that comes with a massive practice disruption cost um, and a workload compression cost and a team turnover cost, a burnout cost and all of the above, right? Quality control costs, everything. So this compression creates cost, but the, but the kind of client that creates the compression also creates an opportunity cost because if there's a client that doesn't respect their financials enough to invest in making them accurate in real time, the likelihood that they would become a financial advisory client, slim to numb, none. And even if they did come to you and say, I need some cash flow projections or I need some, some, some financial advice using what data, right? So either they're going to convert to a good client that keeps real-time financials or there's no upsell capability Either way, they've got to change their behavior or they've got to change their expectations, right? Or they've got to get out of your practice. So we're not saying fire every client that can't get their act together with their books. I'm just purporting here the maybe radical, maybe not so radical view. Maybe it's the same view. Every one of those is an automatic extension. Now, the key here is to write that into your engagement letter. Get them to pre-decide that with you in September or October timeframe. 
sit down with them at that time and ask them, how can I help? So um, that way, if they are in a back on their heels position with their financials for a legitimate or for a negligence reason, you've got September, October, November, December to help them get to some clean books so they can file this tax return when they want to on March the 15th. You're being proactive and maybe even creating a little bit of of opportunity for you to get involved in in client accounting services work. Maybe that might even turn into permanent client accounting services work, right? Um, So that could be an upsell opportunity. At the very least, you've set the rules. And those rules have these dates in them that are pervasive date references. So what I mean by that is you wouldn't say, I have to have the financials by January 15th or we're extending. Because as soon as you do that, you've got to create another engagement letter with a new deadline for the next extension, right? And then you're just chasing engagement letters around. It's, it's too intensive. What you would say is, we have to have the inf- the financial information and all other information necessary to prepare return two months prior to your preferred tax filing deadline. And then that can even be stated in where they write in what they want, what they want their deadline to be. So you can have a conversation about realism that what's re- what's realistic there. Um, and then if they miss that two months, then it would be written in that they automatically extend to the next extension date. But here's the key thing. If they miss the very last one. So let's say that they're the kind of, uh, they have the kind of corporate structure that they have to file on September the 15th and they miss the July 15th deadline. Then I'm not saying you necessarily have to file an amended return, you know, an estimated return and amended, but contractually what they've agreed to through their inaction, they have passively agreed to filing an estimated return on September 15th and they've pre-agreed to pay you to amend that return as necessary when the financials become complete. Now, if they can get them to you sometime in August and you can delight them by over-delivering by September 15th and going above and beyond your contractual requirements and saving them the amended return, you're the hero. But boy, doesn't that change the paradigm from I'm going to get you the stuff on August 15th or September 1st, and now it's your problem to meet the IRS's deadline. We've just flipped the script, haven't we? Um, so use these, use these pervasive fluid date references and go all the way down to what if they miss the last one before, I, before the IRS holds you know, their, feet, their feet. The IRS isn't holding your feet to the fire. The IRS is holding your client's feet to the fire. We have to remember that, that distinction. Now, when you are putting this kind of language into your engagement letters, you also need to have the pricing tier uh, you know, up based off of what's happening with the dates. Now, I've heard this in two different ways, and there are two different strategies. You can pick the one that's best for you. Let's say that they get you the information that you need by January the 15th. And if they do that, then the tax return costs X. But if they miss January the 15th, the tax return costs Y, an increase in price, all the way to September 15th would be Z, highest price. Now, I've heard it go that way because you're incentivizing people 
to do what they ought to be doing anyway, which is get their books closed on time, have good real-time information. It Your pricing is corralling them toward the right direction. And I like that as a CAS person. I like that. But I've heard this on the flip side too, Heather, where if you want the tax return on, on March the 15th, you're going to pay a premium. But if you're willing to extend then you're going to pay less per every extension date, all the way down to if you're willing to just pre-decide now, you're going to file on the 15th of September, you're going to pay less. Now, that doesn't mean that you give them a discount if they extend. It means you charge them a premium if they want March 15th or April 15th for the personal return. And then watch how fast the clients go. You know, it's not, I guess it's not all that important. You know, once they have to pay a premium to get there. And they have to hit your deadline to get there. So there are two pressures you put back on the client. You know, you want me to do it in my busiest season, it's a premium. You want me to do it on time, you got to have the financials to me 60 days ahead. And then they start to soften up on those deadlines really fast, right? But what do we do instead? We make all this reactionary. We either scramble to get the demands that are unrealistic of the client done, or we, in a reactionary way, very last minute with the client mad at us for some reason that we don't deserve, we force an extension. And that's the very leakage I'm trying to prevent. And I can't stress enough. These are not just about practice and process frustrations. We're talking about revenue. We're talking about profitability really, but we're, but I like to frame it as the hidden reduction in price because that sounds better on a podcast. Um, So remember that throughout this entire process, you are going to create proactive touches. I mean, the whole point of this is to make it relational. It's not that you're going to wait until their contractual deadline comes and go, ah, see, gotcha, right? It's that you're going to start ahead of that deadline, right? So you're going to start, you're going to be talking to them in September to set the deadline. You're going to be asking how I can help in October and November. You're going to be checking in with them in December, you're going to check into them right after the fireworks stop on the first and go, hey, are we on track? Everything going okay? Because you want them to win. You don't want them to miss the deadline. Even if missing the deadline means you get to charge a higher price, that's not the point. The point is that you avoid them paying the higher price. You would much rather just get it done smoothly and get it done on time. Uh, don't forget when your last little note on this leak in the boat thing, you need to work with your attorney to make sure that there's nothing in your agreements that would give them the ability to wiggle out of paying you or paying you per the, per the engagement letter. So the last tip I'm going to give, and it's basically a go see your attorney tip, but strategically don't just send an engagement letter, have a contract with the client, an actual contract that's, 10, 15, 20 pages prepared by an attorney with all the proper legalese and then make your engagement letters governed by that master agreement so that so that the lawyer can work with you to make sure, because when you start charging clients extra when they miss deadlines or when you start even saying, look, I'm going to have to file an estimated return and amend I mean, you're going to start getting some clients that defer the anger they should be pointing at themselves to you and angry people must be governed. So 
make sure you protect yourself if you're going to entrench yourself in this way and set these kind of boundaries. All right, Heather, that's my whole spiel on hidden, the hidden reductions in revenue, which is a, you know, it's a shinier way of saying, um, you know, increased profitability. What do you think? I, I, well, I definitely love as far as the increasing the profitability. I love, you know, holding the clients accountable. Um, I was going to ask the question about the whole discount. You answered that. So thank you for that. You know, the other thing that I would just point out is this whole strategy actually gives the firm, it, 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 it's a vehicle to being more intentional with your practice, right? How do we want to do, how do we want to deliver our services to our clients? What is, how does it align with our culture? How does it protect our team and our how does it affect our capacity management? So you could pull these levers, not just for price. I mean, you're definitely protecting price, but you could also pull these levers to protect protect your capacity. So I was working with one of my coaching clients um, just this week, and we were talking about they are at capacity. They can't take any new clients. And there's a stress there of, are we going to be able to deliver? Are we going to be working ridiculous hours this tax season to deliver on, uh, on all our returns to get them done timely? And that was a conversation that we, t- we talked about is this is a way, if you have your clients opt into extending now to push that work to other part, you know, throughout the year. So it's not just the pricing. I think this is a great strategy for helping to level out your capacity as well. So, you know, looking at it holistically across the firm of like, are we able to deliver this? Are we in a situation where there's undue pressure on our team? Um, can we Can we use this lever to help that as well with the intention that come the fall after our full tax season is over, that we're looking at how do we implement this so that we're not in the same position next year. Absolutely. And and listen, the whole reason you and I kind of went back and forth on do we make this a, a process podcast or do we make this a, a, a team culture and team sustainability podcast? Do we treat the reason we chose to make it a, a kind of a pricing podcast or a revenue podcast is because because all those things are true. And then you and I talked about this. Nobody's going to change any of this based off of the pain they felt last month at the end of tax season. They're going to sleep it off and they're going to rinse and repeat. Um, And, but if we would, but you and I agreed, if they will connect this to the fact that it's costing them money. Right. I mean, probably in the average firm, tens of thousands, in some firms, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. And I, once we got that across in this podcast, I'm hoping everybody will go, you know, Joe, you're right. It's obvious. Snake it would have bit me. This is a money matter. Absolutely. And the the pickup put down is the biggest profit yes. killer within a firm. Yes. The pickup when put they're down. piecemeal giving you the stuff. You have your team picking up the, you know, the return, getting it. 60% there, realizing you don't have everything you need, you put it down. By the time you get the additional information, now you have to repeat the process. It doesn't matter. You have to go back in, get your mind wrapped all the way around exactly. it again. Absolutely. Then it bottlenecks the reviewer, right? The reviewers work in weekends. And mm-hmm. I mean, I go back to the day whenever we used to have those big file cabinets and boxes on dollies and we were rolling them through the elevators and into the into our cars so we could work on the weekends. Remember those days? Yep, um, I do. I mean, the, the kids listening and they have no idea. But the, <laughs> the point, but the point is, yeah, I mean, we it, that was all the same bottleneck problem. We've been dealing with it for decades. And um, 
and and so then all of a sudden you have people quit after tax season or get right. sick and all this other stuff. And right. then you're talking about even more financial impact. So everything comes down to the fact that, so listeners will just end on this. You have to ask yourself if I will put deadlines in and enforce them and even lose a, lo- a few clients along the way as a result of entrenching myself into this, um, how much money am I going to put back in my pocket as the practice owner? And I would contend it's a double digit percentage increase in gross profit margin. Absolutely. Just from this one change alone. Mm-hmm. Um, so, all right, let's talk about our next segment. Um, the next segment that we, that we, you know, we're movie buffs, right? And we like mm-hmm. to watch TV and movies, things like that. So, um, in the things that we have watched over the last little bit, um, what's a what's a quotable quote that's jumped out at you? All right, so I love the movie Hugo. Mm. Um, it's an incredible movie. I've watched it before, but I watched it again this past weekend, and this quote totally stood out to me because you know how we are so focused on vision, mission, and purpose within our Woodard culture and within our coaching programs, and everything we do is is around that. And so this quote like stood out to me so much. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I have to, I have to bring this to the podcast. So, um, Hugo, who is, if you don't know the movie, it's about uh, a child who is a tinkerer and he is an orphan. And so he finds this, um, I think it's called a mnemonitron, which is like a little robot that actually draws. And so he is talking to his friend, uh, Isabel about, life. And he says, maybe it's like that with people. He has just said that, um, you know, that when something breaks, a machine breaks, he's talking about machines. And he says, when a machine breaks, it makes him sad, right? Because it's lost its purpose. So Mm. he says, you know, if a clock breaks, it can't tell the time. If a train breaks, it can't take people to where they're supposed to go. And so his quote was, maybe it's like that with people. If you lose your purpose, it's like you're broken. Oh my gosh, that is powerful. Isn't it powerful? powerful. Yes. Yeah. So, and I I believe that's true. I think that when you, when you lose your purpose, you, you lose your direction and it is like you're broken and you have to reconnect with that purpose and you have to fix yourself. So I just loved that moment. It gave me chills and, um, and I thought I'd share that. Yes. Well, it gets back kind of the Simon Sinek, you know, to start with why that whole mm-hmm. it kind of factors in all of those things, because it's why that actually drives everything in life and and life is struggle and why is meaning. So that's good stuff. Um, uh, on on mine, I, I had a couple of them that I was trying to prioritize for this one, but I, I'm going to show my extra geek here and uh, say that I was watching Star Trek. And I had the flu, so I was actually binge watching Star Trek: Deep Space Nine, which is if, if there are levels of Star Trek geekdom, right? Uh, like everybody knows Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and the, and the ship Enterprise. I, I think that if you're human, you know that that doesn't make you a geek. But if you watch Star Trek: Deep Space Nine, uh, you're probably hardcore. Like you've probably been to a Star Trek convention, which I will admit, my younger days I did. So. Um, so this is the deep, deep, deep Trekkie universe. And we won't worry about who all of the characters are because it's way, way too intense and probably irrelevant. But what one character said to the other is so important. One character is talking to the other and it's the, a male and a female. The male says to the female character, 
I need peace of mind. Now, this is such a simple thing, but it's so profound. He says, I need peace of mind. She replies to him, you need clarity. Now, I've, as Star Trek geek, I've probably watched Deep Space Nine over the years, five or 10 times. I've kind of just had it going through. It wasn't until I had 55 years of life and wisdom to interpret that quote that I got its profundity. The connection between clarity and peace of mind. Because, because what I've learned in 55 years is that, 56 actually now, that peace of mind cannot be derived from the environment in which you find yourself. If you're trying to find peace out of your circumstances, it will never deliver. Even if you're in a moment right now where you're in a state of, of everything's perfect, right? Health is good. Finances are good. Domestic is good. Everything in life is perfect, which how often does that happen? We superimpose upon the ideal set of circumstances the worries of what if it goes away, right? So the peace of mind can never be harvested out of the well of your existing circumstances. Peace of mind can only be generated by clarity. And clarity can mean organizing, planning, orchestrating, with extreme intentionality to engineer constant improvement in your circumstance, which is what that character is getting at. And as a business owner, this is where I want to make the business application. Once you understand your financial position and performance, once you know what your cash flow is going to be, your operating requirements are for the next six months, maybe even farther if you can project them, once you have a budget that doesn't constrain you, it actually liberates you to spend within those budgets as a predetermined, responsible stewardship of your company. Once you have that clarity, you'll find as a business owner, your peace of mind goes through the roof. So the inoc- so I'm going to extend on the quote and I'm going to say, peace of mind comes through the clarity of a plan, an informed plan. And for us as accountants, that means a financial plan. Absolutely. Yep. All right. So there's my little quote. Um, so for the next one, I think you've brought us a book. What's you been, what have you been reading? Like? Yeah. What so have you been reading? I read Atomic Habits by James Clear. Yep. And um, it was very interesting because <clears throat> throughout life, it's hard to make something that you don't enjoy doing a habit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that's really exactly what he's talking about is, you know, our brain wants to do that thing that's super easy to us, which is why we procrastinate right? It's why we put things off, the things we don't like doing. It's it's not that we're a bad person. It's not that we're flawed. It's that we have this chemical in our brain that's saying, do the easy thing first, because <clears throat> our body rewards us for that with a little dopamine hit when we do the easy thing first. So um, what he recommends is that we increase the friction, So make it harder to do that thing that you probably shouldn't do. Like, for example, if you think you watch too much TV, um, unplug the TV so that you have to plug it in in order to watch it or take batteries out of the remote is another example. One that that I did in my younger days um, when I had a very unhealthy 
uh, relationship with my credit card is I took my credit card and I put it in a coffee can, filled it with water and stuck it in the freezer. <laughs> so, you know, so I didn't have the credit card in my wallet. I had to actually go and then I had to wait a couple days to thaw it out and then I could go use it. So, um, so or, he- Or the he, microwave. Just or the basically. microwave. Well, <laughs> it was a coffee can. That would have been a whole other, a whole other problem there. So I would have- <laughs> But uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, it, it was a great book because what it, what it's talking about is for the unpleasant and things you don't want to do, you put little carrots and you try to make that more <clears throat> enjoyable for you. So the example that he uses is nice soap, right? So if you don't like doing laundry, what if you were to buy nice smelling laundry detergent that you really enjoy smelling while you're doing laundry? Now, some people can be like, come on, Heather. It's just an example, but you could do other things like, you know, um, for example, a great example is a standing desk, right? If you don't want to sit down and do something because you're like, I'm going to be sitting in this chair, buy a standing desk. And then you can, you know, you can stand up, sit down. Um, another thing that I do is I have a yoga mat in my office so that if I, you know, feel like I'm really kind of struggling and I don't want to do something, I can get up and stretch a little bit just to kind of liven things up. It's a little carrot for myself. Or I can even say, once I get done writing this article, I'm going to go stretch for a minute. So I'm giving myself these little carrots. And as you start to do these things over and over again, then they become habit. So, um, you know, habit tracking is really great because again, as you track those habits and you see that you're actually doing them. There's a little dopamine. Your body again is rewarding you for that. Um, and the other thing is finding an accountability partner. So finding somebody that is going to hold you accountable. Um, and I think you have to find the right accountability partner in my, in my, um, in my opinion, like for example, my husband should not be my accountability partner. Cause then I just get mad at him when he tells me I should be doing the things I don't want to do. So finding somebody that I'm not going to get mad at, that's going to, I'm going to appreciate them reminding me, I think is really important. Um, and then habit stacking, stacking habits on top of existing ones, right? So if you have the habit of making coffee in the morning and you're like me, where you don't always want to do the dishes and clean the kitchen, saying to yourself, okay, when I, after I make my coffee, I'm just going to make sure that everything on the kitchen counter is put away before I, I drink my coffee. That's habit stacking. I'm already making the coffee. I'm already in the kitchen. You know, it's going to take, you know, a couple minutes for that coffee to brew. Let's add this habit of decluttering the kitchen before I have my cup of coffee. So that's just an example. It's so, so interesting you say that because I know the exact amount of time and I make it a game. So that's the other thing is you can gamify this habit formation too, if that's a motivator for you. <clears throat> so I know exactly how long it takes my, my coffee maker to make my cup of coffee. And my game is, can I get the dishwasher unloaded before the cup coffee's ready? You know? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm also forming a habit. I'm gamifying the habit. Yeah. So. Love that. And an example that I'm going to just throw in an accounting example for those that really worked for my firm. <clears throat> W9s. We're just finishing up 1099 season, right? And 1099 season whether it goes well or not well really depends on whether or not you have all those W9s, right? If you have the W9s, not so bad. If you don't, it, it can be a bear. So what we did is we were already in the habit of asking our clients certain questions every month for our monthly cast clients um, questions. So we added to that list to our clients, 
do you have any new vendors that you added? And we added process within our firm to look to see if there were new vendors added to the client's QuickBooks. So we proactively every month got those W-9s while it was still fresh in our client's minds, still fresh in our minds. And what that did was that added a habit to our monthly, you know, accounting services. So. So the, 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 when I read this book, the thing that I took away, because there was so much in this book, everybody should read it. But the one big thing I took away is about redirecting habits. And of, of all the things you've mentioned, it's the redirecting habits that, that made the most difference for me. <clears throat> so, and, and an example of, a, of, of redirection that helps me, I, I would get dehydrated throughout the day. Um, I never took in enough water. So while we've been in this podcast episode, I've probably drunk, I don't know, this is a 24 ounce thing, 12 ounces of water, and it's in a water bottle, but that was never working for me um, until, I, until I redirected an existing habit. So if there's a coffee cup sitting on my desk, without thinking about it, complete muscle memory, a lifetime of me training my brain to do it without thinking, um, I would grab the handle of the coffee cup and I would sip. Um, so I just put water in there. I just kept the coffee cup on my desk, rinsed it, put water in it when I, after I read a Tamic Habits until I formed the habit of if I'm sitting at my desk, I'm taking a sip of water, redirecting the co- existing coffee habit until about six months of that. And now as long as the water bottle's sitting on my desk, I drink it out of the water bottle. So yeah, we so can train our a- brains that way. Yeah, coffee and coffee seems to be the central point of all of it. (laughs) For some weird reason, well, it is an addictive substance, right? So maybe maybe that's the moral of the story is whatever whatever you're currently doing, you're addicted to. So if I could figure out a way to redirect my TV obsession into something more productive, that would be the next challenge. Um, Maybe maybe I could like do something like push ups. I have to do so many push-ups every 10 minutes of TV or something. Um, I don't know. I don't think it's going to happen. All right. <laughs> so all the, all the, the, the last segment that we cover, the next to last segment we cover, we like to, to highlight our favorite social posts. You know, what have we seen out there? And something really funny happens, haven't hap- hasn't happened in the entire history of our podcast nope. time together. We picked the same tweet out we of did. the universe of tweets. So tell us about it, Heather, and then I'll, and then we'll kind of break it apart together. All right. Well, hopefully Jason Stats is listening to our podcast. If he's not, he should be. <laughs> he should um, be. Yeah. So Jason, if you are watching, listening to this podcast, um, you got both mine and Joe's attention today. <laughs> um, so what it was is Jason posted nine on Twitter or X, uh, nine inconvenient truths about running accounting firms. And he was dead on um, with these nines. Um, so I actually picked the first one because I think the first one is one that kind of fits into what we were just talking about, which is overwork tricks you into thinking you did your best, right? So when you're working and you're pushing those 13 hours, 14 hours, you know, the, the, in accounting, that was the biggest badge of honor, right? I worked, you know, 72 hours this week and I'm the best employee and I've delivered the best service and, you know, to the firm and to the clients. Um, and, you know, it's not, that's, that's, that's an inconvenient truth because you didn't necessarily do your best. You worked a lot of hours. 
Like it is what it is. So the time investment that you're putting in does not reflect the outcome that you produced. That's correct. So and, that and was yet, and number yet, one. Yeah, our valuation of effort is our Achilles heel in the whole of the industry. We really price is. based off of it. We measure ourselves based off of it. How hard I work equals how good of an accountant I am. And how hard I work equals what price I should charge. <laughs> and so, and then if you get back to the topic where we talked about with the deadlines, it actually works counterproductive now because all of a sudden we think, well, we're working harder during tax season. So I'm busier and I'm more valuable to my clients and I'm, I'm doing heroic things by getting them these unrealistic deadlines done. Look how good of an accountant I am. Look how valuable I am. And it's just the inverse of how we started this whole podcast, right? Right. Um, so mine is, uh, number seven was my favorite. Now you can go out, uh, there's a, you can go out to water.com slash podcast and look at our listeners notes. We'll give you a link to the whole tweet or just follow Jason's stats. It's what he tweeted on or around January 30th, 2024. But uh, this list of seven, but mine was number seven. Uh, it's easier to spend your days solving others' problems than stop and consider your own, which kind of does get me back to my topic that I let out with today. We're so busy worrying about the client's deadline uh, as imposed by the government or our banks or whatever, that we're not stopping to think, are they being fair to us? Are they giving us what they need? <laughs> Do I have... Um, is this a realistic expectation? And are they willing to pay what this is worth, especially if there's a hurry up on it? Um, and we don't stop to think about that. We just go straight into, I am the, I'm the hero mode. I'm the rescuer mode. I'm, I'm the first responder mode. And we just go straight into problem solving. We do. Absolutely. And, and that also goes back to our brains releasing a chemical when we solve somebody else's problem, right? So if we can turn it around and solve our own, it, that's where peace of mind comes from. It's all coming yes. for full circle. That's it where all comes for full circle. Yeah, full circle. Yeah. Absolutely. We can Absolutely. actually get addicted to the adrenaline of other yes. people's problems. Exactly. Okay. So final segment, this is called the Water Report <clears throat> Podcast. You are the mm -hmm. editor of the Water Report. Um, what was your favorite article in the last week or so that you want to highlight here at the end? So I want to just call out actually a series of articles um, by Mike Triantos um, from Giraffe. Um, he's submitting, he's been submitting articles for about, gosh, about nine months or more. Um, and they're all related to uh, financial planning and analysis and advisory, FP&A. Um, so there's, he's got, the latest one is amazing. So that one is getting started with financial modeling for clients. And so for those of us that, have been a little nervous about stepping into that advisory, right? There's a whole series of articles by Mike that talks about how do you get started? How do you price it? Um, how do you automate it? Or how do you streamline that process? And then how do you actually deliver that value to your clients? And so I, I would like to say, if you go out to the Woodard Report and you want to learn and you want to dip into that, uh, go out there and <clears throat> filter on the Woodard Report website by financial advisory. And you're going to find all of those articles by Mike. And they're really, they're really awesome. Um, lots of great learnings there. And it really is, if you put them all together, it's almost like the how-to um, if you want to step into FP&A services. So that I, I wanted that. to call that out because I, I just, that. great, great content. Yeah. 
Fantastic. Well, Heather, this has been a lot of fun. It always is. We've had a great conversation and I'm looking forward to the next time. Absolutely. Thanks, Joe. See you next time. Thank you for joining us. For more information, please visit woodard.com slash podcast.